Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. We have an exciting episode for you. Joining me is Cheryl Sleen of the Natural Resources Defense Council and Alexander Maggio. Cheryl will talk about engaging the entertainment industry through NRDC's Rewrite the Future initiative, and Alex will share his experiences bringing climate change into network TV shows he's a writer for. You're going to learn the value of storytelling and getting the word out on climate change. This was a fun episode. You're going to enjoy this one. Okay, we have started a bi-weekly newsletter here at America Daps. We highlight the latest episode and news and stories related to that episode's topic. We also highlight other climate pods and share a few other adaptation-related goodies. In the show notes, there is a link to subscribe. Please do. And share with your colleagues. Coming up on the podcast, Dr. Jesse Keenan from Tulane University returns to the podcast. We originally were going to discuss maladaptation, but instead Jesse takes us through some of the early adaptation-related news associated with the new Biden administration. We'll return to the issue of maladaptation soon enough. Also coming up is Sherry Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for Climate and Security and considered the godmother of climate change and national security. Some excellent conversations are on their way. Okay, adapters, lights, camera, climate change. Let's join in with Cheryl Sleen and Alexander Maggio and hear how Hollywood is ramping up its role in addressing climate change. Hey, Adapters. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Cheryl Sleen. Cheryl is the creative strategist and co-founder of Rewrite the Future at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. It's great to be here. We've worked a little bit together. We were on a panel somewhat recently talking about storytelling, and that was really cool getting to know you. And I'm very excited. I, at one point, was actually briefly a film major, and so I'm very interested in this realm that you're in. So I'm very excited about this conversation. So I, let's just jump right into this. Now, you're at NRDC, and I find this very interesting. But first, you know, I, I guess where we should start is what's your background, and then maybe we can transition into what you're doing at NRDC. Okay, yeah. You know, when I think about when I look at my background from here and the job that I'm doing now at NRDC at Rewrite the Future, it's like I have all these elements to my background that sort of fit perfectly into this work. You know, early on, I was in I have a science background and and tech background, but then I switched over to be a writer and director and producer in theater and then that sort of morphed into becoming an indie independent filmmaker, a writer, director of narrative films and do documentaries. And I also have an MFA in fiction writing. So after some time of chipping away at trying to be an indie filmmaker, I started a production company and I was serving clients, offering the specialty of narrative strategies for educational content. And I had a lot of healthcare clients and science clients. And so uh, I had this sort of how we can use storytelling to educate and raise awareness about issues background. And I had this the sort of narrative storytelling background as an artist and then I became a climate activist and I did all the regular organizing stuff, marches and, you know, city council meetings and things like that. And I started to think about other ways to be an activist, you know, like how to engage the arts 
the arts community and artists more in the climate movement and uh, how you could, you know, like use your art and your stories and your communicating through your art as a form of activism, advocating for climate action. And so I started a grassroots group called Vision LA Climate Action Arts. And we uh, were, we produced a festival, like a multidisciplinary arts festival in LA during the Paris Climate Accord. And we were trying to bring, you know, raise awareness about the Paris Agreement and just get more people involved in the movement. And we also did workshops sort of engaging artists in particular playwrights and performance artists and writers in how they might bring their climate concern and all of the, you know, sort of facts and information about sustainability and climate impacts into their work, like through the creative process. So all of that led to some, you know, generating some work with that intention for the public and, you know, where like a hundred people would come to a play or a series of plays or whatever. And it just occurred to us being in L.A., we should really be doing this in the entertainment business because they are telling the stories that have the most reach and the most influence. And so that's kind of my background. And right around that same time, when I was thinking those thoughts, I was introduced to Daniel Heinerfeld at the NRDC who is currently the director of content partnerships. And he'd been working for years making documentary films at the NRDC. And he was thinking right along the same lines in terms of the limitations of fact-based storytelling and documentary storytelling and wondering how we might be able to get more climate related, you know, content into mainstream entertainment. And what's his role at NRDC? Well, I mean, I'm just I'm fascinated that they even decided to do this to their credit. I mean, what, what what's what does he do there? He found I think he founded the film department there. You know, like the it's it's a division. It was a department of the communications program there. So they made a whole bunch of different length documentaries about various environmental issues they were focusing on. And I, you know, I believe that NRDC is one of the few environmental NGOs who's actually won a couple of Emmys for their documentary films. So he directed a film called Sonic Sea about noise pollution, you know, like sonar, radar, sonar noise pollution in the oceans that, that harms ocean mammals. And, and it's a really beautiful, wonderful film. It showed on Discovery. It had a big audience and it won a couple of Emmys. So, but they also make, you know, little, little short documentaries and whatnot. And so he, he made a whole bunch of documentaries at, you know, for them and was in the communications department. And he still is. We both are. And now he's the director of content partnerships, which is he builds these, these partnerships with other advocacy groups and with entertainment and media and things like that. Well, that's amazing. I, I guess I just haven't followed that closely. I mean, I know our NRDC, and it's probably just be useful to sort of step back. And if you're not familiar with NRDC, I mean, it's just a, you know, international, world-renowned, I guess it's an environmental organization, but you think of conservation, they do a lot of environmental economics. And I guess I just wasn't familiar of this whole division focusing on film and entertainment, because normally comms shops, you know, communication shops at large conservation groups, it's just where good ideas go to die. And that's just <laughs> so encouraging that they, they did all this. And what my next question 
question. How does someone like you fit in at NRDC? And you sort of explain it just now because they do have sort of this history. But I'm thinking we kind of met each other through Rob Moore and he does flooding policy. And how do you interact with that aspect of NRDC or do you? Is it is it sort of meant to kind of interact with the rank and file there? Oh, totally. So, yeah, you know, like there's this really wonderful synergy because one of the things that we do at Rewrite the Future, which is this, which is our program, I'm sure we'll talk about it more later. But in short, it's just it's our program that advocates for and supports bringing more climate content into uh, films and TV. And so one of the aspects of that is something that we call climate story consulting, which is where we sort of on an individual basis, on a very customized basis, show by show, you know, writer's room by writer's room or on a broader, broader basis, sort of more educational. But let's just stick with the the show by show. We will sort of um, meet with and discuss with the writers on the show the different ways that climate impacts climate solutions, sustainability, actions, behaviors, choices, and uh, attitudes can weave in to their specific character set, situations, settings. You know, there's a lot of different angles to mine when it comes to climate because it's such a big, you know, global right. issue with, with many impact, different kinds of impacts and different kinds of solutions. And so, when we do that, one of the steps very often is, and, and sometimes what we're coming they the shows will come to us for this specifically is expert we want to make sure that all the information we're providing them is the you know the factual sort of cutting edge policy and science you know out there and we have this incredibly deep bench at NRDC as you mentioned of people who are involved in you know, doing the helping to do the science around studying impacts and helping to develop policy solutions, community based and larger scale, you know, government and uh, making laws and things that address those impacts. And so we've got all that at our fingertips when we do those engagements and what Christiana Figueres would say, she calls them interventions, <laughs> Right. interventions where we provide all that information. So in that way, it's great. We have both the best of both worlds. So to me, to be in so that room with writers as they're creating something, be it a movie or a comedy show or something, that to me would just be a lot of fun. And if you're there kind of providing that expert advice and you as a writer with that background, you're all you're familiar with that whole notion of the creative process. If there's a situation where NRDC and it be you or you're bringing these experts advise in a certain area, OK, this is the science, this is. And I know it, I, I'm not I'm trying to visualize this. You're actually in the room kind of thing. And they take it under advisement. But then ultimately what the outcome, the TV show, the movie that's used, it's really the science is way off or they really kind of get it wrong. But they took your advice. They just listened <laughs> to you. Do you as an organization, do you do you even take credit? I mean, do you, do you guys have a like a policy for that? It's like, well, they got the science completely wrong. We don't want to have our name, you know, in collaboration with NRDC. How does that even work? Yeah, well, you know, each relationship is different. So we, if they get it wrong, we might have the opportunity, depending on our relationship, they might ask us to review the scripts, in which case we can correct it. They want their, the way they, they refer to these issues to be correct. You know, writers don't, they don't want it to interfere with the entertainment value, of course, and neither do we, but they do want to be right. So they'll check back with us. And as far as the, 
the credit goes, but you know, we have to obviously let it go. It's their, it's right, their right. piece, but the credit goes, we, we, we are, you know, we're sort of new in this. And so it's an evolving thing at the moment. We just offer these services freely and we don't ask for credit. Now huh. there may be one or two, you know, projects that we're working on that we're really helping to shepherd along or, and we might want, some sort of credit there, but as either, you know, NRDC as a, an organization or rewrite the future or, or one of the consultants, you know, as, as an individual, if we ever crossing fingers get to the point where we are actually placing consultants in writer's room at a show, then that's a sort of a different animal, you know, that's a different level. And then we'll sort of revisit it. But um, if they want to, you know, it, it, another way that we work with with these shows and films is when they're finished, we might partner with them on an impact campaign. And during that impact campaign, then the NRDC natural, I'll just say the whole thing, Natural Resources Defense Council, it would have a real presence in terms of uh, the getting the word out there and social media branding and stuff like that. Well, I have you thinking about that, and you, you guys have a one-pager, and I was curious, like, you're there, and sometimes they hire people like you, and they're just, you're off on your own, and they're not, you're not integrated very well, but it just sounds like they're doing a good job, and there's a one-pager that sort of explains really what you do, and I, I don't know if you want to, there's like bullet points, but I don't know if you want to quickly go, because I think helping people visualize literally what you do, and you've mentioned a couple of these, sort of advise on scripts, but um, okay, now let me just read these to you, and if you want to elaborate on any of them, but yeah. this is your way of specific roles and responsibilities which I think is just really cool. You put it down on paper. And so industry dialogue and networking, customized climate story consulting, writer's room presentations, working with studio network executives to expand markets for climate stories. <laughs> That's a stretch. That would be yeah. interesting. Um, tip sheet yeah. of helpful, helpful climate mention, science and policy expertise, packaging and development, promotion and amplification, legislative advocacy for climate production tax incentives. That's very specific. That's great. And climate IP library. What's IP again? What's that? Intellectual property. That, right, right. Okay. So what stuff they add, adapt shows from, like pre-existing media. Okay, so those are a lot of cool responsibilities, but what do you find kind of takes up most of your time and those things that you're supposed to be doing? Well, it depends on what's front burner. Right now, we're preparing for doing some presentations. We've had a, a, a sort of uptick. It's very exciting. Interest from many of the studios and streaming studios in our work. And so we're preparing kind of like slide decks and a presentation and overview of like climate storytelling 101 and breaking down that term into all of its possibilities, as well as, you know, an overview of what we offer the studios and the, and the shows. So we're doing those that takes up my time doing the presentations I'm also working on some climate storytelling tip sheets, which are these are sort of like our entrees, you know, into um, as we build relationships with these various entertainment industry players. I would like my time to mostly be taking taken with the um, the climate story consulting hmm. because that's really creative, you know, and right. it's a, sort of it can it can become a very creative brainstorming session with the folks on the show. And it also you know, I get to to sort of do I also love research and I love researching all the various angles that they might 
go for, you know, sustainable fashion, or maybe they have, they take place in a particular setting, and I want to see what is happening on the ground in community organizations there, you know, or something, uh, who are trying to solve climate impacts and so on. So climate story consulting takes a lot of my time, but also um, these events that we put on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, and we're in the throes of building an event right now, which, which is going to be uh, showing at Sundance. And uh, so that takes a lot of my time to, to organize the events where we bring in. We have folks in the entertainment industry and also climate experts in a certain field talking about how that particular that topic might make its way into entertainment and why it's important that it should. So the one we're working on now is is pretty fun. Beyond Apocalypse is called. I imagine, especially if you're just a screenwriter, a TV or movie, like coming up with climate ideas isn't necessarily that easy. And a part of what you do, I think, is just partner with where's the content coming from. And I know you've you've met with uh, Dr. Amy Brady and she's sort of at the center of the climate fiction area. Do you feel that that's an area that you kind of work into? Because there's a lot of climate fiction and bringing those people into the universe of TV and movie must be helpful, I guess, for them, because they're obviously putting a lot of thought into writing these books. Yeah, that's exactly what this bullet point climate IP library means. <laughs> you know, and and we are working with Dr. Brady, you know, to on the climate fiction side because she really has her finger on the pulse of that. So yeah, we want to um one of the publications that or it's hopefully will be like a searchable website that um we've started working on is to gather up all of the possible source material that entertainment makers might use as either inspiration or actually option, you know, as intellectual property that they can develop films and shows from. Climate fiction is definitely one of those categories. And you're right, there's there's a lot there's they've got a couple of years lead, I think, a few years lead over in the fiction area, fiction literature, you know, area. Right than they do on TV and film. So, and you know how Hollywood just loves to use stories that are already exist in some other medium. And especially if they have like a big following, if they already have a fan base, right? Like graphic novels. I mean, that's the big thing, but also podcasts, just putting the bug in your ear, podcasts and and narrative podcasts are getting more and more popular. And then we are also collecting a big part of the IP library would be journalism, like narrative journalism, profiles that focus on people, because that's what we want. We want this. We want to be able to offer source material to writers that is people centered, because that's what stories are about. They don't want, you know, the facts and figures. I mean, they do. Some of them do. But they, they, there needs to be a translation between the facts of, you know, what's happening, the various impacts, and then how people are, their lives are being affected by that. How people are sort of standing up in their communities and courageously being what's called positive outliers in their communities, leading the charge to changing their city over to renewable energy or making urban farms to address the food just, food, food injustice issues and so on. And so who are those people? And finding those people who have been profiled in journalism or who have books written about them or have written books. And so we're collect, trying to collect some of that material to make it easier for Hollywood to find those stories. 
and make them into films and TV. Okay, we need to have continuing conversations of turning America adapts into a TV show. Let's let's keep that, let's keep that conversation going. All right. I'm seeing Brad Pitt as the lead. Um, I do that joke all the time. Uh, it's more or more like Chris Elliott is the lead. If you know who that is. Yes. Well, we make it a comedy, sure. Right. Uh, well, we'll get to that. I've got. I, got, I want to follow up. Okay, so like I, I want to transition now. That's great. What you're doing. That's it's fascinating. I, I would love to just hang out with you for a few weeks as you're doing your thing because. I think that'd be so cool, especially when you're doing the brainstorms. And so the more philosophical here is how do you turn climate change into like a character or backdrop? And uh, it, to me, is it a villain or is it sort of this looming thing? And I know you've looked at climate fiction. They handle it so many different ways. But I, I think people in the, you know, I think the day after tomorrow was one of the early things tackling climate change. And they just got the science so wrong. But they also acknowledge climate change as sort of a driver in the film, and it was a villain in almost a way. But what are you finding? Like, how are you pitching climate change as a narrative device? <laughs> well, you know, we tend to shy away from that, you know, like shy away from climate change writ large, right? Because it's such a a big concept and people have pre-existing ideas about what that phrase means. So we tend to try to approach it through a more smaller scale, story friendly, like what part of the world are you writing about? And how does climate affect that part of the world? Um, what do your characters do, you know, for a living? Are they farmers? Are they teachers? Are they, and, and we can find the angle in once we have that more specific information. So that's kind of the way we, we go at it. We do some general approaches, you know, but we always suggest starting with character because when people, you know, one of the reasons why there hasn't been much climate mention on TV, like we don't see it much on TV and films is because of there's a block. There's like, um, a couple of ruts that people will fall into when they think about telling, quote, a climate story. And one of them is like that, like the day after tomorrow, a big disaster type epic, you know, story. And one is a dystopic or apocalyptic future, like the down the road outcomes of the worst case scenario. And those have been fairly well represented. <laughs> There's also this weird trend in like, eco-terrorism, you know, characters, right. bad guy characters, which is, which is interesting, you know, like, so their attempt to personalize, to sort of bring the issue into a person means they have to assign, you know, they have to, like, I'm thinking about the Avengers movies, you know, where you have that sociopathic bad guy who decides that the only way to save the universe is by killing most of the people in it you know, the sort of fallacy of population control right, as right, right. a solution, right? And so there's these certain ruts that we see in the the storytellers, the stories that are coming out. And it's, I, I find it fascinating that there are these ruts because to me, they represent the folks who are making Hollywood entertainment are as embedded in the cultural climate narratives as everyone else, you know? It's like they're reflecting what they, how they think and feel about climate, which is, uh, can be somewhat limited. So we try to broaden 
what we, I'm sorry, this is, answer is so long, but we're, oh, we basically, we basically try to, to broaden the, the possibilities for writers. It's, it's somewhat of an educational and explorative process, like to get them out of these ruts of how they, how they think climate, what they think a climate story should be. So, cause you hear folks, you know, writers saying, well, yeah, I go and pitch stories to, to executives and I, and they say, oh, we already have our climate project. And what they're thinking about is a project like Day After Tomorrow or a project like Adam McKay is adapting the uninhabitable earth as a series for HBO Max. And I wonder, and I keep thinking of like, like climate change, like you could have a cast of characters in the sense of, you know, the actual human characters, but then there's like sea level rise, drought, and there's just these things that could be recurring that constant, like you can go back to sort of saying, well, we're going to see all these impacts and it could make for great narrative devices. But I wonder, and it's just sort of the history of entertainment, like when we were in war, especially World War II is when we first started seeing it because of its technology, then the whole idea of a World War II, or not World War II, but a war movie, right? The genre of war movies, and then there's Western movies. And so we're not, I guess, even close yet to sort of say the, the climate genre movies. And do you, do you see that we could potentially do that? Because we're not going to be able to walk away from climate change. People go see a movie, watch a TV show, and they're going to go outside and the impacts of climate change will be with them for the rest of their life. Do you see, but do you see it almost being a cohesive genre like that? Sure. I mean, there's this whole class of, of stories. You might argue every, every single story is sort of based on this heroes or heroine journey where the big epic ones are kind of about uh, somebody or some group of people or whatever, some team saving the world. So what if we had, you know, yes, some stories that are about People saving the actual world from the actual, you know, thing that's, that's destroying it. But it's like climate as an issue is, is difficult because it's, you know, like how do you locate from what point of view do you tell your story? It has to be from some, but a person's point of view. So like I'm thinking about existing you know, stories are, that are out. The Uninhabitable Earth, David Wallace Wells is painting these future, you know, scenarios that are just really horrible. And I, I don't know what exactly um, Adam McKay is doing with that, but they're going to put people in those periods of time. And they're doing the same sort of thing in a new show at Apple TV Plus called Extrapolations. And that's Scott Z. Burns and Dorothy Fortenberry are working on that. It's an anthology series that has mm. climate front and center. But they're really... They're jumping through time from like to 2030, I think, to 2100. And they're moving forward through time, but they're also moving around the globe and they're telling stories about different people who are in different situations and settings and how the global climate problem is affecting them in their community and their lives. So they want to tell those personal stories, right? Uh I just wonder how the un uninhabitable earth, I wonder how they're going to, what's the ending on that movie? You know, is it going to be a document? I think the guy who did the big short, right? Adam, McK yes. he's doing that. That's, that's, right. that's a that's big right. deal. He's a brilliant filmmaker. And is it going to be fictionalized or is it like a documentary? Would you know? It's going to be fictionalized. It's going to be a television series. And, uh, and, and I, that's all I've, I've heard. It's going to be funny. <laughs> Oh, funny. Gosh. I have no idea how they're going to pull that off. But yeah. I've heard that there. I mean, he's a very he's a he does satire, you know, really great. So oh, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, turned the big short, and there was a lot of funny in that. But just the uninhabitable Earth, it's just you're three pages into yeah. it, you just like, all right, so do I use use a news to kill myself, or should I? It's just. It, oh my God, it's definitely not nighttime reading. You don't want. Yeah, that's it's distressing. So, well, thinking about another book, it's called Losing Earth. You know, Nathaniel Rich's book. Okay, I haven't read it, but and. That one is just a period piece that and it's just telling the story of when in in the 90s we had an opportunity. We were really close to having national climate legislation. And then Sununu nixed it, who was speaking for the um, fossil fuel, you know, lobby. Mm-hmm. And, but but the Bush, it was Bush number one. I believe was the president and he's a Republican, right? And he's all gung ho for dealing with this climate problem that was presented as the science of it was presented by James Hansen and others to the Congress. And they all decided they were going to do something about it then. And then the forces of industry and, you know, those, those in power who are invested in the status quo came in and upended it. Just a little, a couple of people got in there and messed it up for the future. And so that's a really great focused story about choice and Hmm. the impact of choice. And that sort of message, even though it takes place in the past, but you're right, it's like a historical perspective of how could we have done it differently? It really affects, you know, you and, and brings you into this this point of view of choice. It's like we are, you know, I love that book, The Future We Choose, Christiana Figueres' book, where she's bringing that front and center. It's like we are standing at a choice point right now and we have the power to choose the better future, not just fixing climate change, but creating this healthier, safer, more just, sustainable, green world. We have that choice right now. What choice are we going to make? And I would really love to see more films and TV that are enacting, you know, dramatizing that choice, whether it's personal to someone, you know, or whether it's a community making that choice. And it would be very dramatic, you know. And I'm curious your thoughts on this. This is my own personal opinion, but I, I find the documentary around climate change, it, it just has, and it could be a great documentary. We see these beautiful documentaries that, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio might put together, but it has, to me, has diminishing returns. Talk about just sort of preaching to the choir. And that's why I'm so interested in fictionalized approaches and, you know, Hollywood truly kind of getting movies and TVs thinking about it. And because I, I just do think we've hit a maximum, like, impact when it comes to some of those because it's just not getting out there and on on that note i'm curious it just occurred to me when you think of creating a story a good story is good guys and bad guys and climate change doesn't always necessarily have great examples of bad guys but have you heard of any examples tv shows or even movies i'm just forgetting that the climate denier is truly kind of portrayed as the bad guy do do you see much of that Uh, honestly i don't I, i haven't yet the climate denier may be made fun of, you know, in a comedy somewhat, but not really. I mean, one of the tips that we uh, give people, because we actually have seen this a lot, is to try to avoid staging arguments 
that falsely equate climate facts with climate denial, you know, like where you put people on two sides of this supposed argument. There's no argument there, as you know, you know, it's like one is factual based on science, based on thermodynamics. You know, you believe, do you believe in gravity? Like that, that's the, there's no believing in climate change and climate denial lives in this place of fantasy. There's no basis in reality. So, you know, it doesn't, there's really no point and it doesn't help anyone to stage arguments where you're elevating that fantastical point of view to be equal to the facts, right? But that you see that a lot. You see those kinds of arguments. There's the liberal character and the conservative character having this argument. And it's almost like the uh, writer is trying to be like a journalist and not take sides. Oh, it's a classic kind of uh, West Wing TV show approach to Aaron Sorkin. You know, oh, they're, they're human too. <laughs> Maybe I got that wrong. Well, listen, I, I, I want to explore that a little bit more. And to me, we are at the stage of climate change. And listen, we, we don't want to be vilifying our fellow human beings. But at the same time, I think we should be vilifying climate denialism and if that means vilifying people then there's value to that from the learning aspect of it that it should be an area that people are ashamed of being associated with and i and i think of like the civil rights movement and then the areas of the southeast and that's where i'm from like a movie like mississippi burning great movie you know there was particular villains in that movie that were based on real life people but then the people around them well you know what they're somewhat villains too because they allowed this culture and they sort of not directly supported it but they were part of that and so with climate denialism i think i would like hollywood to everyone doesn't want to offend maybe these people and we're at the stage where they should be offended you know this this is serious business Yes. Yeah, so, well, there, that's one approach, you know, and another that one approach is to, you know, I'm always on the positive, like sort of more the positive side. I, when it comes to villains, I'm all for making those powerful people who are making choices out of greed that that harm the rest of us. That's a good bad guy. Sorry. You know, CEO, right. oil company CEOs who have been actively suppressing climate science for years, those are bad guys, no doubt about it. But when it comes to people who are inheriting, like they, they're sort of steeped in a particular social milieu, right? It's like, where do we get, where do we get our ideas about climate? You know, how do we think and feel about climate? Where do we get those? I mean, there's a lot of different sources, what I'm calling the cultural climate narrative. There's a lot of different ones out there, and there's sort of like a larger one that you can talk about certain aspects of it. But like where we get it from the news and how much we're exposed to the news and what stories the news is telling and other forms of fact-based information. We get it from our education programs, you know, and we get it from social media and social, our social groups, and also from personal firsthand experience. And our cultural climate narrative is also formed, or our cultural narrative about anything is formed by entertainment as well. So entertainment um, media sort of, ha you know, weaves into that, right? So it can also have an effect going through. But I don't want, I wouldn't want to vilify people for sort of adopting ideas that are common to their their social group. What I'd like to do is see entertainment that elevates, you know, sustainable choice making, right? Like that elevate that makes Mark Harmon in NCI. Let's just do a, you know, 
<laughs> let's just take a popular character that I know is popular across the board politically. NCIS is the most popular show on network TV. And so Mark Harmon is the star of that. Everybody loves Mark Harmon. Viewers identify with him. Men want to be him, you know, and uh, women want to be with him or whatever you want to say. So so he has a lot of power and his character has a lot of power in that show. And, you know, what if Mark Harmon were concerned, you know, a voiced on screen through the script concern about the future for his kids because of the because of global warming? There may be a way of talking about it that is not triggering to certain groups of people like Climate change, a lot of people don't even understand what that phrase means, right? So sometimes you have to use different kinds of language that aren't going to alienate certain audiences. But he could be concerned about the what we call the climate crisis because he has kids and he's worried about their future. I actually don't know if this character has kids. And he, you know, like maybe he could be finding out more about it or being exposed to the things like the IPCC report and getting into that state that we all got into and we get into when we are exposed to that, which is despair and dread and horror and fear and all of that, all of those rich emotions that storytellers want to mine and want to show their characters going through. And then in looking at his kids, right? Go ahead. There's the next step, too. I haven't seen anything with Mark Carmen since Summer School, which was a great movie from the 80s. But um, and. <laughs> I think I'm ready for a climate change villain at the scale of Darth Vader, Hannibal Lecter, just mm-hmm. it, the, and I'm not kidding, the per- personification of these things. And, and I guess I know what you're trying to do at NRDC and I, I, I applaud the approach, but I think, you know, there's opportunities for being a bit more black and white. And I think again, back to this Southern comparison is that, you know, people, the KKK wasn't this toxic brand for a lot of the people there for a long time, but then the media started focusing their attention. Then mm-hmm. you started seeing Hollywood taking a, approach to it. Now, if we did the same thing with climate denialism, the sort of a lot of the people out there that are sort of climate skeptics, but they're not really outspoken. Hopefully you give them a reason to shift away naturally because they're just like, that is such a toxic brand. And there's precedent for that. And I think that's going to be important in the coming decades. Yes, you may be right. And, you know, there's I'm, I'm sure that there's room for that kind of approach, as well as, you know, like demonizing, you know, or just devaluing. It's like a shifting of values, right? So devaluing that perspective in the cultural discourse, right? right? In, in, and then valuing and making cool and sexy the next thing that Mark Harmon does, which he doesn't get stuck in his despair. He starts to find out what he can do about it. He starts to develop agency. And so when you have characters, you know, who are where where it's it becomes sexy and cool to care about climate when when it becomes normalized to talk about it right on TV, then the character uh, in a story maybe goes through the process of educating themselves that passes right through into the transported viewer and so on. So and then you're you're sort of building the uh, model for how. Viewers can move from fear and despair to to agency, like becoming part of the solution in all the different ways that are available to them in their lives. I love that we're talking about Mark Harmon. I'm just like, oh, my gosh, that show, just like the demographics. But you're absolutely right. Those are the most popular shows. Like my dad, the kind of show that he wants is like the good guy, the bad, like Blue Bloods and those kind of like, oh, my God, I've never seen these shows in like, right, procedurals. 
Listen, and there's an opportunity here, right? There's right, an opportunity right, yeah. here, Doug, because people love to have their problems solved. That's what they, that's why they love those comfort food, right? It's comfort right food. Right on. So, like, this is this is the comfort we're going for with climate. We can solve this problem. <laughs> no, I'm with you. And, you know, it's on a very large scale, but but when you show it on the smaller scales that are particular to that story, you can be feeding the audience that sense of settledness and joy and appreciation and like warmth in the heart like ah okay in our community we were able to go you know like to not pollute or whatever we were able to uh, make our community more resilient after all those people died in that flood right or whatever i mean it has to be it sounds so very boring when you talk about it like that so, <laughs> you got to find the way that it's exciting and emotional and high stakes for those characters in your story let me tell just one more example when we're talking about reaching these what i like to call underserved audiences or perhaps climate resistant audiences is to uh work with settings livelihoods, interests and activities that are um, that are part of their world. So like one of the I was talking about um, adaptable IP before. And one of the there's a great series of short films about good old boy ranchers and farmers throughout, you know, that flyover middle of the country that are experimenting with being exposed to like uh, sustainable farming methods like no-till farming and so on and they're rehabilitating their soils and so on that were dead because of industrial farming and these guys were being faced with losing their livelihoods from you know that uh, generational livelihoods and land and they're all choked up about it these guys in their you know red caterpillar hats and whatnot then you show in the documentary, show them trying out these methods and in fairly short time, seeing their soils come back to life, seeing their livelihoods come back to life and they can provide for their families again. And then the things, the ways that they're going about doing it are closer to how their ancestors, you know, their great grandparents farmed and they feel a real generational affinity to that. And you see all that. These guys standing next to their tractor with tears coming down their eyes. It's just so moving. And so telling stories, you could, you could incorporate that sort of thing into any show or film that is, takes place in any of those states. You have, you know, a Friday night lights where one of the characters lives on a farm and his dad is going through this. It doesn't have to be a, a, a film that's all about that. It could just be a little piece of it and you can do it in a way that is really received it's by that audience i would take mark Harmon talking for three minutes on that show over like some super highly polished documentary that someone's working on i'm agreement with you completely i would take it if they truly got some good rhetoric in there so i think that would be a great idea before we kind of wrap this up i was just curious do you work on reality television at all we haven't so far but i think that it's it's really a great op we should we just start have a kind of a limited capacity. So we're focusing on fiction. Yeah, that would be a great 
I, there's a lot of opportunities there. Oh my gosh, the climate resistant. You know, I actually, uh, I work, I don't know if you know her, Carmiel Bonansky. She's a yes. She and I, she reached out to me once, and I, I actually created a pitch for a reality television show around America Daps. And so she and I kind of went back and forth. And so I am just convinced that you, it's talking to the kind of crowds that we want to talk to. And so I encourage you to, you know, it, it's not. <laughs> reality television obviously gets mocked and such, but it's what people watch. And so what are trying to figure out some of the climate opportunities there? I highly encourage you if you can. So, Right. Well, believe me, we are doing our research in terms of outreaching to those shows that are most popular because the whole point of this exercise <laughs> from our point of view is to sort of rapidly change the zeitgeist around climate to support a, like a broader public demand and call for and excitement about decarbonization. We want to reach as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. So if someone wants to work with you, and I know you're there uh, in California working and you've got, you're busy there, but let's say there's other organizations that want to kind of get into this space. They're, they're, I guess they're inspired by NRDC kind of taking communication to this next level. Should they reach out to you? What, What do you recommend for people to kind of learn more and maybe to kind of to do more? Sure. Yeah. Well, they could find out more about what we're doing by going to our webpage, which has that one sheet on it that you were reading from. So that's nrdc.org slash rewrite the future. Or they could just drop us a line at our email address, rewrite the future at nrdc.org. And, you know, we would be happy to give more information and talk more about their interests. I include links in my show notes, too, so people can a lot of people use those. I'll definitely include that for sure. Yes. So, I mean, you can you can see the kind of thing that we're doing, the the sort of bringing together climate activists and change makers with Hollywood storytellers in this event. We've got coming up February 2nd. It's streaming through the uh, virtual Sundance portal. Sundance, the film festival, is all online this year. Uh, it's called Beyond Apocalypse, and it's we've got Christiana Figueres is on the panel, who is the um, one of the architects of the Paris Climate Agreement, and she wrote the book The Future We Choose. And we've got a couple of master storytellers who have been dipping their toe into what we call climate futures storytelling, and we're just asking the question if it's if it's possible to show alternative futures beyond disaster and apocalypse and dystopia like we we often see when we're in in Hollywood it's like what other kind of futures are possible for us as human beings <laughs> and how might Hollywood help us envision those so that we can you know sort of see where we're going get excited about it and work together to build the the better future do you think there'll be a recorded version of this there will be it's recorded and it'll stream on February 2nd but then after that it will live on that nrdc.org rewrite the future page. I'm starting a new question. I ask a recurring question, but I'm, I'm going to start off with you, see what you can serve up here. Is that because uh, I find this actually quite useful? And is there a, a Twitter account that you would recommend that my listeners check out? I'm going to say, you know, I follow Julia Louis Dreyfus. <laughs> okay. It's uh, yeah, her her Twitter handle is at official JLD, and um, she's just got a great. 
Twitter, which she's really engaged in, you know, environmental stuff and politics and progressive politics. And as she's also a new uh, board member at NRDC. So she elevates our stories as well. So yeah, and she's just, it's funny and entertaining. So I, I recommend that. Excellent. Something a little bit different. I highly recommend because if you just follow climate account, Twitter accounts, you're just going to get depressed. And so I, yeah. I try to mix it up myself. <laughs> exactly. My final question is, if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be? I would totally recommend Christiana Figueres, but I think you've already had her. Right? I have. I've had her. She was fantastic. But, yeah, so. so so great. Okay. So then I would say maybe, have you had Mary Heglar on? No, no. She does the hot take, right? That's right. So she's just really great on climate justice and on media representation of climate. You know, those cultural climate narratives and where they come from and how we can change them. So she's one possibility or maybe Dorothy Fortenberry, the um, executive producer of that new show on Apple TV I mentioned called Extrapolations. Okay, very good. And I, I had Amy Westervelt, which I think is uh, um, Mary's oh, yeah. cohort for that. That's but uh, right. I think Mary would be great too. She, I follow her on Twitter, and she's <laughs> she's yeah. outspoken in a very good way. It's very it's fun following her. Yes, she doesn't hold anything back. No. And no, no. full disclosure, she's also she also works at NRDC. Oh, does she? I didn't quite catch that. Okay, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Cheryl, this has been fantastic. I, I think if, you know, I want a future episode maybe where we really dive into an issue of just the creative process and maybe even talking about how scientists have designed themselves to be such terrible storytellers and how we can, yeah. right? So how can we could really dig into that and what's some of the history there? And I think I would love to have those kind of conversations. So, but this has been such a treat and, and I appreciate you coming on and for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun talking to you about it, Doug. Hey, Adapters. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Cheryl Slane of NRDC. Now joining me is Alexander Maggio, a TV writer who will share some of his experiences bringing climate narratives into the work he does. Hey, Adapters, and we're back. Also joining me in this episode is Alexander Maggio. Alex is a writer-producer and is currently in development with the show Echoes, a high-concept sci-fi drama with Netflix. He recently completed work on all six seasons of Madam Secretary on CBS. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Good to be here. So I had talked to Cheryl Sleen from NRDC talking about how Hollywood's involved with climate change issues. And here we are dealing – you are Hollywood, so I'm very <laughs> excited to have oh, this conversation. I, I, I wasn't aware. That's awesome. Yeah. No, that's that's how we view. If you're in the, L.A. and working on these shows, it's just, you know, we consider you all Hollywood. So that's very exciting to, for Fair me enough. to have this conversation. And so we're going to talk about how you talk about climate change. And I I think maybe the best way to start this off is maybe just give a little bit of background on yourself. Like you are a writer on, on TV shows, but what does that really mean? What, how did you get to where you're at? I mean, every every TV writer has a very different background story. People come from all parts. My route was sort of uh, circuitous. I was originally working in, in government intelligence after college. I'd, I'd studied abroad <laughs> in Beirut and, and spoke uh, Arabic. So I was working for the Defense Department. Then I got sick of that. And I did theater for a while. So I was a playwright um, and then like an SAT tutor. And then I, I sort of stumbled my way through the door by making some connections the way the way a lot of people tend to do. So that's how I, so I arrived. And then basically, like my job as a TV writer is, and, and producers with the other writers, we, we get together in a writer's room. We kind of collectively chart out the episodes um, of a particular season of whatever drama program we're working for. And then we also write individual episodes. So I did 
I think about 12 episodes for Madam Secretary over the course of six years that I personally wrote, but I was I had a hand in the sort of plotting and, and character development of, of the series the whole way through. Okay, so I imagine that government experience made you a, a sort of attractive contribution for a show like Madam Secretary, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely helpful. Although the number of times people looked at me like, Alex, what would happen here? And I had to be like, you know, actually, guys, let's ask our uh, consultants because I didn't run into this particular situation. But yes, I was able, I was able to contribute um, some of my own background to the story. So let's talk about Madam Secretary and and you know what? Let's talk about climate change first. So sure. why is climate change personally an important issue for you? Oh, man. I mean, why? Why isn't it? I, I would say that, like, as a storyteller, I find climate change a particularly fascinating topic because you know, this, this is this sort of theme throughout, you know, drama and memorial really is like how how do people cope with change that's difficult to understand because you know as people in our everyday lives we seem so programmed for the status quo so it, it represents this sort of really interesting dramatic question and then also just as a you know a, a concerned citizen who had to spend a lot of time kind of thinking about government and how it works and and uh, what the future of it will be from my work on madam secretary um it was a it was a kind of good merger merger of sort of personal dramatic interests and you know and advocacy issues that i that i already been interested in so six seasons that that's quite a long time hey that's syndication right that's how you guys oh, look yeah. at it um yeah no it's <laughs> nice i got I get the green envelopes in, in the mail and uh, it's, it's wonderful uh, I think, what is it? You get 40, 60, 100 episodes or something. That's where it kicks in. But as that's besides that, did you, were you thinking about climate change when you first started? You know, let's, when did it go off the air? Was it just last year when it went off the air? Yeah, it was just last year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so were you, were you thinking about climate change as you started with the show or did it kind of come in really quickly? How, what was the timing and all that? You know, from the very beginning of the show, we were talking about it as a, as a topic, you know, as a serious issue, you know, where, where we our whole idea was to deal with foreign policy threats to the United States uh, in our show through the, through the lens of the secretary of state character and climate change, of course, is, is front and center in, in a number of issues both both small and, and large that we're confronting just strategically, you know, aside from like the, the sort of human tragedy of it all. So we were talking about it very early, but we weren't actually really able to get it into the show in a concrete way until later down the line. And I think it was really interesting to be on the show because it sort of straddled, I think, what is a fairly significant change in the attitudes of uh, writers and executives and, and Hollywood in general about what audiences will accept when we're talking about that topic. I think initially everyone was a little wary of it because it's a little taboo. Um, but by the end of the show, we were able to sort of put it front and center. So I think, I think, um, some of us were pitching a show or a particular episode specifically about a climate change crisis that was essentially the same premise as the episode I ended up writing in, in season five, but it took a few seasons before we all felt like, uh, we were, we were able to get that through and get it produced. Well, that's interesting, too, because when you first started the show, if I got my timing right, is that you felt a little bit cautious about talking about climate change, but you were still in the Obama years, and then you yes. had this sort of abrupt shift with Trump coming into office, and as writers, you can't ignore the fact what's really going on there in you know, the Secretary of State's office. How did that come into play? I think it really lit a fire under us when, when he got elected, honestly, because we all sort of came to the office the next day, sort of dazed and confused and shocked because, you know, <laughs> I think we'd, like a lot of people, we were surprised, but we'd also just been in this bubble of, you know, constantly talking to, to technocrats and, you know, intelligent, reasonable, uh, career, you know, government surface types who had really spelled out the sort of calamity 
vis-a-vis climate change that, that a Trump administration would represent. So, it, you know, it really motivated us. A lot of us sort of thought, well, you know, if the world's going to get destroyed, we might as well be honest about it uh, on television. <laughs> that led to a number of different topics for the show, but climate change was certainly one of them that came more center. And then also, I think, because, you know, you mentioned we were syndicated, we had the luxury of being a successful show. We had a little bit more independence and leeway to tell the kind of stories we wanted to tell. Because once you made a certain level of profit, you know, for a studio, they're a lot more willing to just kind of go along with what whatever you want to say. Okay, so Madam, you know, we probably should have given a little bit more context. I mean, it's on CBS, one of the major networks, but Madam Secretary, could you just briefly, it, it's obviously about, you know, an, someone playing the Secretary of State, but you, could you give a bit, little bit better description of like what you're sort of covering in there? Yeah, so uh, as as conceived by Barbara Hall, who created the show and, and first hired me to join it, Madam Secretary is the story of a female Secretary of State who's actually coming from an academic non-partisan background to sort of thrust into the, you know, tense, difficult politics of, of, of the moment, and particularly from the point of view as uh, as a woman, as a female leader in government who's who's making waves. And that's where the focus. And I think what, what the show also tried to do in a way that a lot of other shows about local leaders haven't done is is contain a kind of work-life balance. So the, the, the home story, the sort of family drama in the show is almost as significant as as the work story. So it was about trying to balance doing right in the world with having, you know, a reasonable level of sanity and um, in a positive relationship with, with your spouse and children. All right. I don't know how often you get to talk with science communicators. I mean, you are a science communicator, but, you know, there's a whole field and whole networks and such. And on the issue of climate change, and I'm wondering if you experienced this, too, on the show, is that six years is almost a lifetime when it comes to climate change. And yeah. so someone who's trying to communicate climate change six years ago, you know, the whole goal is really to avoid the doom and gloom. But each year, the science is getting stronger. You know, the impacts are getting stronger. Did like even the wildfires in California that must have overlapped a, a bit with some of your writing brainstorming, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we were just constantly being confronted, you know, with, with giant disasters all over the world. You know, the, there was a major typhoon in the Philippines. I think that that influenced our storytelling a lot too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting in terms of like what what your approach should be. You're right. There's been an aversion to doom and gloom for a long time, and I, you know, to a certain extent, I think that is problematic. I think the way we tried to really approach it is doom and gloom is fine if there feels like there is a very genuine, moving human relationship story that matches with it. That that at the end of the day offers you a little bit of hope or like shows shows people adapting and coping um, with reality rather than just running from it. Did the term, and this is the area that I am, is adapting to climate change. So really are two issues of mitigating carbon emissions and adapting to the impacts. Did you actually use the language? And I'm sorry, I, I wasn't a regular viewer of the show, but I watched the show actually today uh, focused on climate change that you recommended. But do, did you ever use the word adapt or adaptation in, as a sort of a technical term in the context of climate change? Not not in a significant way. I mean, we had we did a whole thing where there was Paris Agreement or a kind of you know fictional interpretation of, of the Paris Agreement where we talked about um, providing funds to help with climate resiliency. I think in developing countries, but we didn't make it a major theme. No, and I think if we were you know still doing the show, it would would have been a fun thing to delve into more. 
Well, just missed you by a year. Well, yeah. the, epi- the episode I watched, I, I think it was a later season, and it was focused on – there was a, a big UN summit around climate migration, and it was tied into a measles outbreak. And I, I kept thinking this was like filmed or written when during the whole COVID, but obviously not. It was done before, and you even had a child in- – intubated because she had the measles and there was a whole anti-vaxxer and you tied it all together and it was very clever you were tying climate change and the climate migration issue with this measles outbreak like what it was that your was one of your shows that you wrote right um that one was actually written by my good friend christy korzik did a he did a terrific job with that one i wrote one that was about a uh, small pacific island needing to be evacuated due to uh, rising sea levels and, and storm surges but I mean, we were, we were always, I mean, like once, once we sort of hit our stride with climate change, we were able to sort of keep it a continuing theme throughout sort of the end of season five, um, and into season six. I mean, I would say like overall, it was a funny experience being on the show because we were constant. I mean, we seemed like we were predicting the future. Well, we were just all it really took was constantly talking to, you know, smart people whose job it is to think about what the sort of future problems are going to be and the sort of disturbing thing is they were right almost all the time in terms of, you know, whether, whether it was climate change migration or, or pandemics or, you know, issues related to your nuclear treaty. It, it was sort of like all of it was being predicted by smart people um, that if, you know, someone had just been listening, we might've been able to avoid some of, we even did actually, we even did a 25th amendment episode. <laughs> it was really sort of funny to see that one coming up. Oh, I got to check that out. And I, I, I wish I would have seen your sea level rise one. That's usually what I focus on, but I'll have to go back and watch that and recommend to my listeners. I'll include the link to just like specific episodes. I'll follow up with you, which include my show notes. It's funny because I have these conversations of how you turn climate change into a compelling narrative. And it's not necessarily easy, but after I was watching your show, it's just like, well, you've got all these mini dramas. And it occurs to me like with climate change, there are just an infinite number of mini dramas that you could weave together in a show. You know, like what's the sort of like the main character, the main premise you still got to figure out that out and that's not easy but like there are just tons of yeah, mini dramas yeah, that you could bring in i mean i i really think like, personal opinion that that's that's really where uh, we hope we can do so much better because i think a lot of times there's this sort of sense that oh my god you know climate the climate crisis is such a calamity it, it, it needs like a giant scale of the story to reflect it and the truth is it really doesn't there are all sorts of relatively small human stories. I mean, you saw one in that episode that Christy wrote about um, a mother dealing with her daughter who, who had a really serious measles infection because vaccination rates were lowering and, and it was spreading globally. So, yeah, like, I I think there's a world of possibilities there in drama and in comedy about the sort of small ways daily life is being impacted by this. I mean, unfortunately, we're living in a reality now where that's that really is true, that it's it's having a major impact on day-to-day life for a whole lot of people and has these ripple effects into the tiniest corners of our lives. And that's the thing I think would be the, the best to see. I mean, I think, I think we really can go a long way to normalizing the reflection of, of the human experience dealing with, with climate change in a way that'll make people stop and think about it in their own lives. That doesn't have to be, you know, giant Pacific typhoon or, or international pandemic storyline. 
All right, so I want to get your opinion on how Hollywood's doing in general on climate change. But just as, as a final part of the man, Madam Secretaries, you, there's always that risk of like coming off as too lecturing. Oh, well, you need to stay away from these topics. What was the sort of, of your feedback? Did you, did you get to see some of that and like the negative or positive? What was, what was your experience with that? I mean, I think it was generally very positive. Uh, I mean, like you sort of knew going into that you were going to have a certain number of people posting crazy things like, you know, I've had it with this show. It's just all liberal propaganda. I can't watch a single, you know, <laughs> their frame what's hilarious about that is the people who posted that tended to be posting that same message like every week so it was obvious they kept watching even if they were complaining. <laughs> nice. i was always i was always sort of amused by that so maybe, maybe they were watching um i don't know i mean so there's a certain percentage of people that you just sort of knew react to that but mostly people were reacting to the individual stories and i think that's a real sign that we were doing it right that you know the story could move and entertain people you know even if they weren't necessarily predisposed to believe some of the stuff we were telling them that's very interesting i would love to read some of this i said you know people who if you deal with climate communications there's a lot of climate trolls and stuff so you get your fair share of negative i actually don't get that much and i've been able to uh, avoid quite a bit of it it wasn't wasn't too bad i actually got way more criticism for an episode where i had an irish character like an older irish character and i was accused of Conforming to Irish stereotypes because he expressions. Um, <laughs> oh, that was that was it was, it was so we can't please everyone. It reminds me of a Simpson episode where they're making fun of like the Irish character, um, <laughs> which I was not doing. But anyway. Okay, so let's talk about Hollywood. And yeah. you were involved with a, a TV show, and you're mm-hmm. in, in. Maybe you can bring this up too. You're you're developing a TV show mm-hmm. at Netflix. I don't know if it's climate related. I don't think we talked about that. But mm-hmm. how do you feel like Hollywood I- in general is doing on climate change? And do you think TVs are the TV platform is a better vehicle for you know talking about these things, or are movies just as good? I mean, what, what's your sense? I mean, that's, that, that's a great, that's a great question. I think so, like what, what the overall picture is. I think there's a real acceleration of telling these stories. Is it enough? Is it, is it going to have the impact, the sort of broader cultural impact I think we need? I'm not, I'm not certain, but it, there really has been, I think, a, a very significant change in the last five years. There's a whole new generation of, executives and agents and managers and writers who are really eager to tell this story who are looking for excuses and opportunities to reflect the reality of the climate crisis in their work. So I, I see a lot of positive development. I mean, I know there's, there's been a lot of failing up till now, but I'm really, I really feel like we might be turning a bit of a corner in this and hopefully we can, we can make it, you know, a, a common everyday, you know, part of the cultural conversation uh, in a way where it's just a given. And then just in terms of the, the sort of TV versus movies of it all, you know, they're different forms. I, I biased as a, as a mostly TV writer tend to think that in some ways you can sneak, sneak sort of thematic elements into TV a little bit better because you have a longer run of character development. Right. You can explore sort of more corners of a particular character's story. When you're writing a movie, you, re- you really have to stay laser focused on. Uh, the, the the main narrative of that story you only have about two hours, and so it's harder to sort of pull in sort of more secondary themes, I think, in, into into a lot of filmmaking. But you know, people are constantly surprising me. I think Adam McKay might even have a project that's like all climate change that that he's working on. So I, I think I think that filmmakers can absolutely crack that and find ways to to create a novel approach to do that. But I think since, since so much of the culture now is, is consuming, you know, serialized streaming storytelling, I think there's probably 
going to be a little bit more cultural um, there. Cheryl and I talked a little bit about that, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells, I think. It's a nonfiction book, and that's who Adam McKay, that's the movie he's going to oh, make. And it's just, okay, awesome. I, but I don't know how he's going to make it into like, an, like a, a fictionalized movie. I mean, he did an amazing job with The Big Short, which was based on reality, but it yeah. was just, I, I don't yeah, know, it's, anyway, it's depressing. It yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, I'm, excited, I'm excited about it. I'm mean, excited to like, you know, stuff like that's being produced and people at his level are, are – are trying to do it because yeah. you know i think we're at a stage we're still unfortunately at a stage where we need a lot of the adam mckay's of the world to get front and center front and center behind this, this type of storytelling to make sure that it, it reaches wide audiences i talked about this briefly with cheryl too is the the documentary film and you know i guess it'd be a documentary tv show too i'm really getting quite jaded to those because you have these beautiful documentary films like leonardo dicaprio he, he's he funds a lot of this he's been a big climate proponent that's a great thing he's a but these movies are just watched truly by the the same people the same narrow groups the echo chamber or whatever the expression you want to use and it's I don't know. It's not making any progress. And so when it comes to shows like yours, Madam Secretary, and she and I spent a little bit of time talking about, let's say NCIS with, uh, who's the, uh, Matt, Matt Harmon had mm-hmm. like a, a small climate change theme story in that. How many more people, what a different audience yeah, you could seriously. reach. Yeah. But even, I mean, but Madam Secretary is on CBS. It's, it's yeah, much I mean, bigger. That, but that they, was, that was part of the, you know, the, the sort of privilege of writing that show in a lot of ways is that it really did reach mass audiences. I mean, for a while it was on, you know, after football games. So you'd, you'd get some trailing viewers who are busy watching like, you know, the Atlanta Falcons play the New England Patriots and they, they come into Madam Secretary with their, with, with the point of view of, of a very broad cross section of America. So we were, we tried to be mindful of that when we were, we were writing our episodes, but, but I agree with that. I mean, we are in a really fractionalized time. It's a little bit difficult to, to break out of these sort of, you know, micro viewing environments. I would, here's my advice if Leo DiCaprio is listening to this podcast right now, is that, you know, he spends a lot of money on these things. Instead, volunteer to go on NCIS. If they guarantee you some sort of climate change storyline, and I bet the writers of that show would be thrilled to get someone like Leo on. And I, that, I know that doesn't happen very much, but think about how much more influential he could be if he did such a thing. Yeah, no, seriously. I like, I like that idea. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, it, it's, it's really, and I, I think like a lot, for a lot of these shows, this is, this is where some of the more conservative, executives hopefully can can turn the ship a little bit and allow some of those stories to bubble through because i'm pretty sure the writers on a lot of those you know like broad audience procedurals and in comedies are interested in those kind of stories would, would want to tell those kind of stories but i think they're often being blocked at at a sort of higher level because there's this sort of fear of like well our audience is used to this they can't handle that and hopefully that's the kind of thing we can avoid in the future well, listen, he, he, I'm sure he wants to make some sort of big radical difference, and that could just be so outside like his comfort zone. <laughs> that would be it. Instead of spending $25 million, just go do that, and you could have yeah. such more influence. Anyway, okay, I'm not going to give up that. in the teaser and then shock everyone. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what about you? Your next, This project, it's yeah. Echoes. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah, yeah, because I'm going to give a little, a little about this. It's basically uh, a high-concept sci-fi. It's a little bit like um, Arrival meets the Abyss, and it's about um, first contact with an intelligent underwater species that's um, under extinction pressure from global warming. 
it, it's, it's been, it's been really feeling it's, it's been a very different sandbox than, than Madam Secretary. Yeah, I've really, I've really sort of enjoyed delving into it and, and talking to brain biologists. Well, sometimes they don't enjoy that because it's really depressing, but it's also motivating. You might have just said, but it's, it's a series, right? Not just a one-off or what? Yeah, so this is this is in development for a potential series order. So okay. it all depends on how much they uh, they like the stuff that we're about to turn it on. Well, good luck, Netflix. That's always that's like the you know the great thing to be on to you know get a, something on Netflix. Obviously, CBS is you you made it, but like Netflix is that you know I think there's just a different audience. So that would be awesome. I I wish you luck in that. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting kind of creative differences between the the two mediums too. So yeah, it's been it's been exciting. Thank you. Do you have a favorite climate themed movie? For a movie, yeah, let's go with a movie. Oh man. I don't know, Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> hey, listen, that that's been talked about. I get it. Yeah. I mean, like I've, you know, I'm I'm actually like a, among those people I think that have have struggled with the plugging into the, the mega disaster in films that have approached this. I like that one just because I think a, a glimpse of the dystopia, you know, is interesting uh, and and kind of exciting. But I'm trying to think beyond that. No, that's probably probably when I, when I pick. Like Waterworld and Day After Tomorrow get all the attention, but they were yeah. pretty bad movies. So <laughs> <laughs> Waterworld is kind of underrated, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I like that. I mean, it wasn't as explicit, but I, I thought that had some sort of, sort of good themes underlying it. They lost me at those like 200 year old jet skis that could survive that long without you know rusting Ooh. away. So <laughs> well, they were rusty. They just you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> they disappeared. I'm from Florida. Those things last about five years. The great that's good. Right, I love that movie. Fantastic movie. And if there are and I know you've done some speaking around this. You're coming on this podcast. But if you know there's groups out there that do science communication, if they wanted to reach out to you and maybe get you to speak, you do those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. I'll have some um, contact information that would be helpful. But all right. So the last question, and hopefully I'll get something interesting from you. But I asked of every guest, if you could recommend someone to come on my podcast, who would it be? Oh, good question. You've had Anna Jane, right? Sorta. I had I, I did a climate themed episode where I did like interviewed eight other climate podcasters and she came on with uh, her 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 co podcaster for like five ten minutes. So. Yeah, I was gonna say it would be like an interesting variation on this theme because she's she's been also recently kind of organizing to try to um, influence Hollywood writers to to do more on this on this subject, and I think she's had some frustrations and insight from that that would probably be um, relevant. Let's see who else? I mean, I think if you get, I think like so Sarah Treem is starting to get involved in climate change storytelling. She did some stuff with The Affair. She's a really fantastic writer. And it's just like one of the most intelligent people you'll you'll ever speak to. Um, I think she's a good recommendation too. I could try to hook you up. Oh, that'd be awesome. Well, okay, those are two very good ones. Well, Alex, this has been a real treat. You know what? I hope we actually get to stay in, in contact if you have ideas, because I'm always trying to have different angles on this podcast. And if you think of good topics and such, you know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, it, yeah, and maybe even when you, if let's say Netflix picks up the show and there, there's an opportunity to come talk about it on the podcast, you know, I open an invitation for that. Absolutely. I'm down for it. Again, Alex, thank you for coming on and, and good luck. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Cheryl and Alex for coming on the pod. I love talking about this stuff. A long time ago, in a university far, far away, I flirted with the idea of being a filmmaker. 
I didn't have the right stuff, so to speak. Okay, enough with the puns. It just wasn't a good fit, but I always loved the entertainment industry and using the creative process to share important content. A friend adroitly commented that my podcast was my roundabout way of getting to marry conservation work and the entertainment industry, and I guess she was right. Good point, Cheryl Sadowski. I hope you guys follow up on the resources in my show notes if you want to learn more about what they do. Also, check out Madam Secretary and especially those climate-themed episodes. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast via America Adapts, think about using a podcast. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I normally connect with folks at conferences and meetings, but that has been shut down for the last year. So definitely reach out to me directly if you have some ideas for this type of episode. That's how I keep the lights running. So maybe your organization wants to highlight the great work you're doing. Email me at americadapts at gmail.com. This is separate, but most of you have heard me talk about the work I'm doing at Simpatico Studios. Folks, that's full steam ahead. I'm hosting live talk shows on the Climate Adaptation Channel. I'm interviewing climate adaptation experts, clean energy entrepreneurs, and academics from around the world. It's a whole channel dedicated to climate change. And speaking of TV studios, consider using Simpatico for your own video production needs. Want to capture a panel, workshop, or even a conference and have something more professional than just a Zoom call? Then consider using Simpatico Studios. Go check it out to learn more. Okay, another reminder, we have the Podcast in the Classroom initiative. On the America Adapts website, you'll find a link to a page where we have discussion guides developed for 16 of the America Adapts episodes. It's a very cool resource. Consider using podcasts in your classroom. No matter what venue, high school, college, workplace training, use podcasts. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts and ask to join and I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. On that note, I love hearing from you. Take the time to email me just to say who you are and if you're in the field, let me know what you do. I want to give a shout out to a listener that reached out to me. Hey, Nico Escueda, thanks for being a listener. Nico is a master's student at Yale studying adaptation. Nico, thanks for taking the time to write. Good luck with your studies. So as you can see, it's very valuable to me to know who my listeners are and helps drive the content I create. Do it. I know you want to. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email and check out the website, americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.